it's one thing to say I can do it and it's another thing to see someone live the word I can do it and it doesn't matter what circumstances I'm in. Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic. This episode is sponsored by the University of Toronto School of Cities. The School of Cities convenes urban-focused researchers, educators, students, practitioners, and the general public to explore and address complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities and urban regions more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. To learn more about their work, visit schoolofcities.utoronto.ca. This episode is also co-sponsored by the University of Toronto's Department of Geography and Planning. To learn more about their work and the different undergraduate and graduate programs available, please visit geography.utoronto.ca. In this special episode of Urban Limitrophe, I am joined by a special guest, Hannah Hamedi, who is my good friend, and together we are exploring the Justice Defenders. For those who don't know who you are, Hannah, can you give a brief introduction about yourself? Hello, everyone. I know you can't see my face, but imagine a really big smile on an individual's, you know, face, <laughs> and you'd be imagining me. Um, as Alex said, my name is Hannah, and I'm very happy that we have met because we've come a long way from when we first met last year. Um, I am not a master's student like Alex, sadly, I wish I was, but I am in my fourth and final year at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and I am a student in the Peace, Conflict, and Justice program. I'm also doing two minors, one in Diaspora and Transnational Studies, and one also in History. Um, To describe myself, I'm trying to think of like some salient points that will really drive it home but yeah I I'm East African and I'm really passionate about that section of the world specifically when it relates to conflict and how conflict impacts women so that is something that I take a keen amount of interest into and when I'm not editing for this podcast I'm a researcher at the Reach Alliance and I also work as an intern at Jumpstart Refugee Talent helping with one of their programs so tons of stuff on the go. I like to rock climb. I like to drink coffee. But yeah, I think that that's a good way to describe me. (laughs) And for those listening, Hannah actually has like, like mountaineer boots, (laughs) earrings hanging (laughs) on the side of her head. Yeah, so that really drives home her love of mountain climbing. I I made them myself out of uh, clay. So I'm very proud. They're my little mountain boots. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you should be proud. They're really nice, actually. I've told you before, but I'm telling people again <laughs> who are listening. <laughs> I should start a you. mountain boot earring store. I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you mentioned the Reach Alliance being a researcher there, and then I'm also a researcher there. And so uh, for those listening, that's actually how me and Hannah met in the summer of 2021. <laughs> so basically, the Reach Alliance is a program run out of the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. 
So the REACH Alliance aims to better understand how social services and development interventions are delivered to marginalized communities who are often the hardest to reach. And so what that means is that um, Hannah and I, along with a number of other students from across the university, so in this like cohort of REACH Alliance researchers, we have PhD students, we have master's students, we have undergraduate students in different disciplines, and we were put together and then actually paired off into smaller groups initially to come up with some project ideas by researching other organizations around the world who are offering solutions that are helping the hardest to reach in alignment with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so the project that me and Hannah ended up picking was the Justice Defenders. And so um, through once we had selected this topic, we went through several rounds of like research and then presenting and pitching the idea to the rest of our cohort so that it would be selected as a final uh, project that in a larger group we would be able to explore and dive into for the rest of the year. Unfortunately, it wasn't selected, but that didn't mean that the, the dream, <laughs> uh, <laughs> our dream of talking about the Justice Defenders and sharing the great work that they do, that didn't end. Um, and so that's kind of how this special episode came to be and why Hannah's still here as my co-host to help um, share the stories of uh, the Justice Defenders workers and the prisoners that they're uh, defending through their various initiatives. Do you remember how we first met? Um, I think it was like on the Slack, right? We were doing like introductions. You know, you do when you're like in a new group, you're like, hi, I'm Alex from <laughs> Toronto. <laughs> and I like so and so and so. And I think I probably mentioned the podcast at the time because I had started. And I think you had, did you message me privately or did I message yeah. you? Yeah. No, I messaged you privately. I like slid into your DMs, but professionally. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I know we're both like obsessed with Africa because we both focus on that region of the world. And you were like, oh, hello and, and that's where the conversation started and then we were brainstorming like all these different ideas of development organizations and the work that they were doing and then justice defenders like we just stumbled upon it and mm -hmm. it was almost as if the clouds moved the rays came down from heaven like there was music in the background it was great mm -hmm. and look where we are now I feel like it's 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 been so many months later and we're, we're still obsessed with justice defenders <laughs> <laughs> yeah as you can tell we're like justice defenders fangirls I guess is how you would describe us in terms of this project and the work that they do but it's really because they have this unique or at least uh, what we think is this really unique approach to justice I can actually read there's this one quote on the website that every time I read it I get so like riled up I get so jazzed with excitement because it just sounds so good let me try and find it yeah it says on the website they are equipping the accused, informing the indicted, educating the incarcerated, uprooting the unjust, and defenders of the defenseless. And it's really that focus on defending the defenseless and giving prisoners their own tools to their own freedom is really what attracted us to this project and why we love it so much. And so, yeah, Hannah, if you want to give a brief introduction to what it is that they do. When we originally pitched Justice Defenders, um, the REACH Alliance kind of gave us an outline of the things that we, they wanted us to focus on um, when driving home the work that Justice Defenders does. And we broke it down to like the country context and the challenges that exist there and the outcomes that Justice Defenders enables within that specific kind of like environment. And one thing about Justice Defenders is the fact that, as Alex said, like 
giving a voice to individuals who in any other circumstance would be voiceless. Um, and it was originally started in 2007 by Alexander McLean, who is a UK lawyer. And through partnerships with places like Google and the University of London and the EU, Justice Defenders has been able to kind of create a solution to the issue of like corrupt criminal justice systems by giving individuals access to legal education and training and practice. And that's really important and actually like I think kind of revolutionary in a sense because of the fact that it's giving people the tools to not only strengthen themselves and their ability to advocate, but also the communities around them and ensuring that people have access to equitable and informative um, justice tools, specifically when you're in countries where you can't necessarily afford to hire a lawyer or to hire a paralegal who's going to fight for your case. One of the surprising facts when we did our original pitch was that in Kenya specifically, which is one of the countries that Justice Defenders operates out of, four out of five prisoners will never gain counsel before pretrial or during their hearings. And what that leads to is an overcrowding of the prison system, but also individuals who are incarcerated for reasons that, you know, they might not have actually done what they did. They are just there because of the fact that they can't afford the ability to advocate for themselves in front of a judge and get legal help. So Justice Defenders filling in that gap really kind of relates back to SDGs, specifically number 10, reduced inequalities, and also number 16, which focuses on peace, justice, and strong institutions. Yeah, and, and what Hannah is describing regarding justice and um, or rather the lack of it is like a global issue. From our research that we had done, we found that 5.1 billion people have unmet justice needs as a result of the global justice gap that disproportionately affects marginalized sectors of the population. So, you know, this lack of justice unfairly penalizes low-income people through the use of excessive pretrial detention, which, as Hannah explained, which means that people who are accused of a crime, whether they're innocent or guilty, are held in jail until their trial. And as the justice defenders explains in their own words, they say that justice delayed is justice denied. Ain't that the tea? Ain't that the tea? <laughs> exactly. And so, so that was a bit about justice defenders, but in terms of why this particular topic resonated for me, because I know this podcast is about, I guess, urban issues and city building and stuff, but I think that cities, they're like an arena where, you know, everyday laws are enacted, literally, like in, in real life, you know, you have laws about parking, you have laws about, like, also like immigration, you have uh, zoning laws, which is something I'm learning about <laughs> right now in class. But um, yeah, it, it, they come into play, and they get manifested into the built environment, but also they manifest in the way that we live our lives and how we go about our daily happenings. And so I think justice or like the law and, and the legal system is always at an undercurrent of whatever's going on in the city about like what you can do what you can't do I don't know if, Hannah what what about this project you already touched on it but can you give a bit more about why this particular initiative resonated with you it's interesting because I think that your approach with focusing on like the urban aspect of justice and then my approach coming from like a background in peace and conflict really kind of blended together under this like umbrella of what we on, were on a mission of trying to understand like what does justice look like because we couldn't necessarily define that getting started because it's such a broad term and it looks so different for the different people that are interacting with it and I think part of the reason as to why I was 
like, I felt kind of like a, a, a red string attaching me to justice defenders. The, the idea that they focus so much on accessibility, I find is incredibly important. We need to recognize that like, people won't be able to access what they think justice is without it being accessible in the first place. So in Kenya specifically, there's no centralized public defender's office, which means that people aren't able to be provided with like pro bono support or counsel. And that in itself is a disadvantage to them that, you know, someone who maybe has a higher income wouldn't necessarily have to face if they were facing the same crime. And I think that justice defenders attempting to find a solution for that within a system that you know, has not had the capacity to do it themselves is so, it's so meaningful and it has such a massive impact on the way that people are able to live their lives and also just like the confidence that they have approaching the world around them in society, specifically if you feel like you already are marginalized and not treated the way that you should be. So there's just so much to it. Like, I think this is such a unique project and I really, it's hard to kind of find this happening anywhere else in the world with such success. And as someone who is Kenyan, it just really speaks to my background and the country that I feel very closely tied to in the diaspora. From the moment I saw it, I was like, this is it. <laughs> this is what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad that that's kind of the path that we took. I, I guess our story is really a good story of all's well that ends well. So our pitch yeah. wasn't accepted by the region lines, but ultimately, as soon as we got the no, <laughs> I went out and sent some emails <laughs> on the night and messaged people on LinkedIn to try and find someone that we could speak with um, uh, from the Justice Defenders. And thankfully, we have to give a big uh, thank you to the Justice Defenders team for <laughs> answering those messages. I know, then, right? Yeah, answering those messages and then introducing us to Millie, who is our guest for this episode. And so she's actually from Justice Defenders Uganda. And we got to speak with her from, I guess, Ugandan context, but still staying in this region of East Africa. And so that allowed us to pull in some of the knowledge that we had researched before um, and inform our questions and our conversation with her. So to learn more about what they do and hear some of the really like heart-wrenching but also powerful and impactful stories about the impact that they've had in the like legal system but also in the communities that they work with, just, let's just tune in to hear what Millie has to say. My name is Miri Kakunguru, and at the moment, I am the lead of the education department in Uganda. And um, as you already know, I work with Justice Defenders. And uh, Justice Defenders is basically a community of people that want to serve the defenseless communities. We share our calling, and we come together majorly in two aspects, that is the legal education, and the legal services that we call our legal offices, basically legal aid. So in those two aspects, we serve the defenseless community, uh, which could be you know, prisoners that are incarcerated, people that are incarcerated, and um, we bring justice to them. We teach them how to be their own advocates because as a community of justice defenders, we believe that there are certain things that can only be seen by people that have cried. So if you give me a tool and I know the pain that I have gone through in the justice system, obviously I'm going to use it in so many more creative ways than uh, probably someone who is paid to do it because 
it's very personal for me. So basically that is um, it. And we, we, we are currently, we have branches in Uganda, Kenya, um, our headquarters is in the UK. Um, last year we expanded to the Gambia. So it's a growing movement, if I should say. And the bottom line is we are simply fighting for the defenseless. And through the fight, we believe in empowerment. So we are empowering the defenseless to be their own first advocate. Yeah, I love that notion of uh, yeah, defending the defenseless in like an analogy or that's a metaphor, that story of um, you know, if you teach someone to to fish, they can eat for their entire life versus like giving them a fish and they can only eat once. And so giving people the tools to really take their future and take their lives into their own hands. And that's something that yeah, me and Anna really enjoyed when we first heard about the organization. And so for those who are, I guess, less familiar with like the storyline of how this organization came to be, if you can share how did Justice Defenders get started. Um, Justice Defenders is um, fairly young, kicked off work in 2007, and, um, you know, initially we were all over the place, you know, doing skills, life skills, and, you know, doing a bit of everything for the defenseless community, and particularly the incarcerated people. So over time, as we've grown, we have discovered that there is a greater calling when it comes to the justice sector. And we believe that, you know, when we help them get justice, then they're able to get out and, you know, feed their families and do all these skills. Um, so we thought um, as it is now, and as we kept growing and we keep growing and, you know, getting advice and, you know, listening and learning from our own mistakes or, you know, good points or whatever we've done well. So through that evolvement, we've come to, as it is now, we've settled and we feel like we can create a bigger change if we settle down and help the defenseless communities legally. As we speak right now, again, we are growing. We invite everyone to come on board because it's a community and it's a calling for the most part. We do it for the love of doing it, and for the love of seeing someone change. So yeah, currently we have the legal education, which has had um, quite a number of people that have gone through it. And um, this legal education is run both in Kenya and in Uganda. We have students who are enrolled and we are in a partnership with um, the University of London. So it gives us sort of scholarships or some waivers or even just the understanding of, okay, it's okay, you can have your students do the long distance um, LLB degree program. So we work as like a bridge between our students and University of London. We send forth the materials, we help them study. Um, where there's some concepts that are not being understood, we provide tutors that break it down to, you know, understanding level, we coordinate exams for them. And it's very, very exciting to see us reach there. We have seen people go through what I would say our journey with us. And they are doing really great. We have seen lives transform through, you know, the education program, through the legal services program. I can share with you a story of um, a lady who, you know, enrolled in the program and it's a full LLB degree. I'm telling you, like, you know, it's one thing to say I can do it. And it's another thing to see someone 
leave the word, I can do it, and it doesn't matter what circumstances I'm in. So these guys sit exams just like any other LLB student or law student out there, you know, undergraduates, and they pass, and we've seen very good grades out of them, you know. Um, we've seen people who have graduated with that degree and transformed their lives. They Some have since come out like... Um, the lady I was sharing with you about, um, Susan Chigula, uh, she came out, but even before she came out, the knowledge she got, she was able to challenge like the death penalty. And as we speak right now, there's you know, a change in, in the precedence. They do not give a mandatory death sentence anymore. And we saw hundreds of people benefit from that um, legal precedent or, you know, case that is resolved by the court. And then people come and, you know, sort of persuade court to follow that as a precedent and still, you know, arrived at, at, at similar uh, conclusions of legal cases. So it's been, it's been amazing, an amazing, amazing journey. Um, our legal offices, as we speak, we've seen tremendous results. Um, we've had over 17,000 people uh, benefit from the virtual courts alone. And that is um, with the coming of the pandemic, you know, it forces us to think outside the box and just be a little bit more creative um, than we would have been on a normal day. So you know, we've seen in introduction of virtual courts where we enter into partnerships with the judiciary and we are like, okay, you're having a challenge because it's a pandemic and you cannot have physical courts. How, you know, we come in and make it doable to have a virtual court. So we facilitate that. And we've seen people, like I said, over 17,000 people benefit from both Uganda and Kenya from, you know, um, that partnership of having virtual courts facilitated. We have trained um, paralegals, you know, paralegals in, in justice defenders, like I said at the beginning, we empower the incarcerated people themselves to, you know, be their own advocates. So what we do is we pick a couple um, and we train them. As we speak right now, we've conducted about 42 trainings and those 42 trainings can serve or the people that pass out of those trainings, again, depending on, you know, the facility, the prison facility, and how many people are in there, we are able to, to you know, uh, come to a conclusion that, okay, if there are like, you know, 3,000, maybe 50 paralegals can be sufficient. So we train them, and then um, they are able to give back, you know, to their fellows. Uh, through basic legal awareness sessions, because as we know, we have many people who are incarcerated that may not necessarily know what to do, okay? So they are in there not because they've done, you know, the worst of the worst, but because they didn't have the courage to say, your worship, I may have done it, but I apologize. And some of them are very little crimes where they say, okay, you understand, you're remorseful, I've cautioned you. But because he doesn't have the strength and he doesn't know he can do it, he's forced to keep quiet and then he's remanded for a ridiculous number of years, you know. And these are problems that are shared globally. It's not just Africa. It's not just Uganda. There are problems that are shared globally. So we believe that when we train a paralegal, someone who stays with you, who lives with you, who understands you, you know, it's, it's very easy for you to just come in and be like, oh, Hannah, you see, when they took me to court the other day, I froze. 
you know, I, I didn't have it in me, but, and then you're like, oh, okay, next time you go back, just put your hand up and say this. And they're like, oh, that can actually be done other than someone dressed in a suit, you know, telling you this is what you do. So we use their peers to help them, which is um, amazing. We have served over 33,000 uh, since we rolled out the legal offices program. Um, we have seen over 15,000 prisoners or people that are incarcerated be released, which is amazing. Um, the virtual courts alone during the COVID situation, we saw over 13,000 incarcerated people released. So that's what we are doing at the moment. And it's, we are very exciting. We continue to grow. It's, it's an exciting journey. Yes, definitely like a journey and, and, and through the different stories and components that you've talked about, you've had a real impact in um, providing all these services to these individuals. And so I was thinking something that was really unique about the, the justice defenders is like this particular model. And you, you touched on it already. You talked about there's an education component, there's like a training pr- component, and then there's like a practice component with the peers that are, um, have been trained as paralegals and are then supporting other people who have been incarcerated to get the justice they deserve. But can you walk us through then? Yeah, that process of recruiting um, uh, someone to become a paralegal and then going through the different components of the justice defenders model to, for example, at the end of it, get, get a, a degree. How does that work? Okay. Um, so like I said, we have two major departments. We have the legal education and we have the legal offices. When it comes to the legal education, we give, obviously, because it's expensive and we are 100% donor funded, the numbers are very limited. Um, as we speak right now, um, so far we've had about, we've had 39 graduates from the LLB program, which is the University of London Long Distance Undergraduate Program. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have um, 28 still in the system and we very, they're expected to graduate between end of 2022 and 2023. So the process of becoming a student, you apply, we obviously call for applications, And um, there are things we look at, like uh, the requirements that any other university would require of a person that wants to take the undergraduate uh, bachelor of laws degree. In Uganda specifically, our national guidelines are that you should have such advanced level, what commonly referred to as A level. And for you, it's not just enough to sit, you ought to have um, attained at least two principal passes in the four subjects that you sit or three that you sit, you know, you could sit three or four, depending on when you entered the system. So uh, you have the two principal passes, you take an oral exam, you take a written exam, and these are, you know, it's a legal exam. It has, you know, legal, it has aptitude, Thereafter, we take the names to, obviously we work with the prisons authorities to check the names, especially for them, they just simply come on in terms of discipline. Because if you want someone to be an ambassador of justice, the first thing you have to check is their discipline. Because if they are not, it just complicates the process. You know, justice has a lot to do with discipline as well. So uh, when it comes to the paralegals, the ones that we use as paralegals, and uh, maybe just before I go too far, all students are paralegals, but not all paralegals are students. 
So the paralegals, because it's uh, fairly um, not that complicated, it's not like they are sitting for a bachelor of laws degree exam. It's, um, we look at senior four, what we call the ordinary level uh, qualification. We look at, um, we also give them both written and oral examinations, and we have a pass mark. 50, or if they've overperformed, it can obviously go up just like any academic institution. The past mark 50, but you know, in the event that it's over, and then you can just raise the bar, but you don't lower it. <laughs> yeah, so they come in, you know, do the orals, do the written, and people that pass it, we still check the names in terms of the spirit of servitude because we also do not want to have someone in who is not willing to give back. This is um, pro bono. So we check spirit of servitude that is with their uh, respective officers because they've they've known them longer than us, you know. Um, They know them beyond what we see when we visit for those hours that we are in prison or virtually with them. So after that, and now we have you know, the two departments work together. So we first recruit for the paralegal program. And then from the paralegals, we advertise for the LLB. We give them trainings, obviously. We give them trainings because some of them have no clue what the law is or have just very little. It's not really enough to, you know, help others. So we have paralegal trainings. After the recruitment, we take them through an intense paralegal program where we are teaching them criminal law, you know, what you have to know, the basics. Um, We have a justice defender's criminal law toolkit. The toolkit was developed by justice defender's staff, uh, myself as well, um, the education department, and because we look at the legal content of whatever training is going to be rolled out. So that toolkit is basically a manual. You know, in Uganda, criminal law, if it's the theft offense, what must I look out for? How long can, you know, someone be on remand in the event that they've overstayed? What do I do? It's very simplified in a layman's language. The moment someone can read and write, it's very easy to look at and be like, oh, if I overstay for 60 days, I actually have a right to mandatory bail. So tomorrow when I'm before the judge, I simply say, by the way, I've been in since 2019. And they'll be like, oh, really? You actually have a right to mandatory bail. So we use that. And um, we have what we call awareness sessions. In the legal awareness sessions, we are simply, you know, breaking down the law even further because then the paralegals are using what we have trained them and empowered them with to then pass it down to their friends. You have a couple of hours a day where you're going to a ward and you're like this and this. Maybe I'm training you about, you know, bail. Some of you, you've not gone home simply because you don't have sureties. Sureties may seem complicated, but it just means someone who is able to stand in uh, before court and say, I will make sure he comes back to court. Now, do you think your wife could do that or your mother could do that or your, you know, son or daughter? So you just break it down and they're like, it's not that complicated. Why am I here anyway? And then we make the phone calls and before you know it, people are going home and it's very amazing. And yeah, so that's really the recruitment process. We have a criteria that we follow, which has academics and discipline as well. 
And also importantly, we are also looking at, um, especially in the convict prisons, we are looking at people who have a certain time to, you know, still be in. Obviously, we wouldn't say, oh, please don't go out before your time is up. But we, we wouldn't recruit someone who has a month to go because then you're wasting resources. You deal with someone who has maybe a couple of years, say five. Obviously, you pray that they get released and they do get released. But from the word go, we are looking at maybe five years so that you have the opportunity to give back. When we train you, you're there for maybe the next two years or five years if you cannot appeal your sentence. But within the time you're there, you're giving back to society through you know, the work you're doing for your peers in prison. Well, that's great to hear. Hannah, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it seems like Justice Defenders has such a large impact on so many different people. And the ability to change people's lives must be so meaningful. But I can also understand that there might be some challenges that you guys face in the work that you do, specifically because the legal system is such a tricky place. Would you be able to kind of go into more detail about what some of these challenges have been, what they looked like, um, and how you've gotten through them as an organization? Yes, indeed, they are a couple of challenges. But um, I think the most obvious one is that we are 100% donor funded. And, you know, there is always the problem of funds and we are always, you know, obviously inviting people to come in and join the cause and um, on our website, there is, you know, plenty of how, you know, people can fund and donate and, you know, stuff like that. But the reason why it's so much of a problem is because, again, we are 100% donor funded, but every step here takes, you know, time and money the people that come in to train the, the paralegals are not like, like they are staff, <laughs> you know. Uh, you have to buy stationery during the mass awareness sessions. Again, since you're dealing with people who are there, you know, in you're going to make it simplified. So you have to develop IEC materials or, you know, those standard like pictorials or, you know, easily translatable messages. And it takes a lot. Um, we usually have like trainings of magistrates and like judicial officers training. It's a partnership, but very often it's nice to just call them and be like, hey guys, this is what we are facing when we interface with the prisoners. You know, these are some of the issues that come up. And in that space where you're talking, which still costs money. But away from that, obviously, also the biggest problem is. Um, the justice system is a very, very good system, but it does have its flaws as well. And some of them could take ages to remedy. I've told you about how some of our students use the knowledge that they're empowered with to go on and try policy changes. So they petition the courts to change some of the policies that they have in place. For example, the mandatory death penalty that was championed by Susan Chibula in Uganda. Those petitions are obviously very expensive as well, but it also takes time for the justice system to go back and you know change their writings that they've lived by for years, you know. So yeah, the flows in the justice system sometimes are not as straightforward, but again, we work around them. We have partnerships and we try to talk, you know, and just um, beat it as well. Um, we also have, um, which is really not 
much of a problem. Maybe that's the reason we exist, you know. Um, congestion in prisons all over the globe. Prisons are very congested, except for a few countries, you know. Most of us are very, very congested, and yet still people go in. And some of the issues we, you know, we can't really... I cannot say we will wake up tomorrow and they have gone. They are work in progress and we trust that um, there will be a time when they will not exist anymore or they will exist, but very, very minimally as well. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important because you're touching on the challenges on a macro scale. So what affects the prison systems in general and the legal system? I'm also kind of curious how are there challenges for the prisoners who might like be in prison as inmates? Are there certain healthcare conditions or living conditions that you've come to face with? And how have you been able to kind of manage those and also provide an environment where people are able to learn and feel like they can thrive? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> humanly people fall sick indeed. So people do fall sick. Um, the good thing is most of the prisons have put in place facilities where, you know, they are able to take care of, you know, the incarcerated people when they fall sick. So you have, you know, um, sick bays that are, I could say, fairly equipped. Um, they have um, welfare systems that actually deal with, you know, socioeconomical welfare of, of, the student, of the people that are incarcerated. But they do have challenges. For example, families, you know, you cannot force your mother or, you know, Hannah's mother to come visit her if she has decided she won't come. And that is something that, you know, will affect them. But unfortunately, there is not much you're going to do except to just talk to them and cancel them and go into that space where you're sort of just telling them it's okay, you know. Maybe she will come, maybe she will not come, but what matters is you're still very valuable. You know, look at the work you're doing. If she knew she would want to come and associate with you, you know, just telling someone, okay, um, there are people who have committed crimes within, say, their families, and people do not want to, anything to do with them. People upon say release, they want nothing to do with them. And still that is not something that, you know, I'm able, I cannot build houses for everyone, unfortunately. But what I can do is I can go in and just tell them, you know what, uh, maybe if you're in that program, just give back as much as you can, you know. Who knows, you know, once you come out, this is something you're able to even use beyond this world. Um, out of the 38 graduates that we've had from the LLB program, some of them are holding very, um, I would say, I don't want to say prestigious, but <laughs> I could use the word, positions, you know. They have come out and they are like state prosecutors. I know one called um, Ekwam, who he, he was in Uganda, you know. And upon release, actually, um, he used the knowledge to get an acquittal. When he appealed his sentence, he was actually acquitted, meaning he was never guilty in the first place. And he has since used his knowledge, now works for the government. We are happy to have associated with him. The government is happy to, have, to be still associated with him. So there are challenges that WIC could help in terms of counseling, you know, we give them a little, you know, like I wouldn't say, but stipend because there is no way you're going to use, you know, a prisoner and they're not washing their clothes. So you give them something little to at least buy, you know, some soap or 
you know, whatever basic needs they may want. But again, that's, that's like very little and negligible compared to an actual person's needs, you know. There are problems we can help, you know, there are problems we cannot. Uh, we have challenges like pretrial detention. There are people globally, a prisoner stays or, you know, someone who is incarcerated will stay on remand for a long time to the point that if they had been convicted, it would have been better, okay? Or they stay there for such a long time that by the time justice comes, it's almost useless, you know? So such problems are well and uh, alive there. But again, the good news is we know them and we try to identify them as much as we can. And we work partnerships. We create a lot of partnerships so that, you know, it, it takes a community really. You cannot defend justice globally as justice defenders alone. You have to partner, you have to bring people on board, people, you know, so that you work together to help. Yeah, no, it seems like regardless of the challenges that have been presented, justice defenders really goes back to that idea of community and helping each other out. And regardless of the things that might come before us, we'll work together to kind of find a solution or to make life a little bit better. And I think that's really meaningful and impactful. Um, I know that you've kind of shared some stories before um, during your introduction and recently, but would you also feel kind of comfortable sharing a moment where you felt the most impacted by someone regardless of, you know, whether that be in the office or while you're doing a site visit? It was fairly recently actually. That's just one of the many I could go on and on and on. <laughs> but there was um, a young mother who had been remanded for <laughs> soliciting or alleged uh, prostitution. Now, because prostitution is such a technical, especially uh, crime to prove before court, <laughs> you know, Again, the people that we have so many players in the justice uh, justice system that, yeah, so they brought her in and she was um, at Luzira Women's Prison for that crime. Although on her charge sheet, they had put, um, I think I don't disorderly before it was um, disbanded. So she comes in and she's quiet mostly because she was ashamed or embarrassed of the crime that had been allegedly, uh, she had been put on, which was prostitution, you know? Now, unknown to everyone else, she had a two weeks old baby and she had left home and left her neighbor in charge of, oh, the baby's asleep, please keep an eye out. I'm just running away for like 10 minutes. I'm going to be back. And the neighbor was like, okay. So during that, you know, 10 minutes, supposed is when, you know, she was arrested and brought in and remanded. And she stayed in prison. You know, it's not like a village setting where your neighbor is, say, a cousin or your sister or, you know, your mother. This is an urban setting, slamish, um, where you have no clue who your neighbor is, really, you know, you could be there and tomorrow your neighbor is not there and they've shifted to another place. So she's incarcerated and she's in for one day, two days, three days. And our paralegal notices that she has um, 
like uniform, the, the uniform they wear, the incarcerated people's uniform would always get wet. So she's like, wait a minute, why are your, you know, like boobs sort of leaking or something? Do you have a baby of some sort you are breastfeeding? And she says, yeah, I actually have a two weeks old baby. And we're like, what? So our prison, uh, our uh, paralegals, the prison-based paralegals come in and bring it, to, you know, obviously encourage her and be like, come on, it's an alleged crime. You know, you've not yet been found guilty and you're innocent until proved guilty. You know, we have facilities because the women's prison has... Um, a children's facility, so you could be imprisoned with your child, especially if they're of tender age. They provide uh, facilities where breastfeeding mothers and the pregnant ladies. So they told her it's okay, even as you await, we can talk to the welfares and they just really encouraged her to the point that she allowed to speak to the authorities. They brought her to the welfares and she, you know, gave directions and about a week later, they brought her baby. Oh, they were able to call a family member who traced where she was staying and they brought for her her baby. And with the help of our paralegals, she was actually acquitted of the crimes about a month later. She was able to go back with her baby. So for me, the stories and sometimes the things they do are like super tangible. I cannot imagine being a mother myself <laughs> that I could sleep even one night leaving my two weeks old baby in a diaper for all that time. You know, you have no clue if your neighbor is still there. You really do not know your neighbor because there could be some wrong character. You know, there's child sacrifice all over the place. There is, it was such... For me, one of those moments that I can never, ever forget. And every day I'm like, wait, I'm a part of this. And I just encourage everyone else, however way you can, to just be a part of Because sometimes there are things that are like you wouldn't know until you just experience it. It's something so little and you're like, what? Like it does happen. <laughs> Injustice manifests in so many ways globally. So for you to just be able to put in a positiveness wherever you can, it's just very fulfilling. And I feel like little acts from me, from you, from the paralegals all over the globe is exactly what we need to make this world a better place. That's such a strong story because I think sometimes you don't even recognize the fact that for women, the justice system is going to be different, right? Because there's different kind of challenges that you're going to face and the situations and the conditions that you live in are going to be different. Um, I was wondering, do you think that Justice Defenders has been able to have an equal impact on both men and women? Or would you say that's something that the organization is trying to work on? Um, currently, Justice Defenders, like I said, it's a community actually Many times we call ourselves a family, <laughs> you know, in whatever we do, we refer ourselves to, you know, the justice defenders community or family. I believe that we've been very, very intentional in um, making um, justice equal for everyone. And um, equality and equity, I could say, go hand in hand. Because equality sometimes is, okay, I give you a stool, same hide some everything I want you to reach a certain point of the wall or get a certain basket of some shelf. Equity is, depending on your height, I will give you a stool 
long enough to help you reach that shell. So I think justice defenders as a community has had so far <laughs> the wisdom to know that equality sometimes need a little bit of equity. So we treat our people that we serve as they come, you know, we do not discriminate. We will take in whether male or female, but we shall tailor make the services that we give you to suit your circumstances. And at the end of the day, everyone is happy that they got that fruit called justice because it would be useless if I gave an equal stool and you know, Hannah is a thousand meters taller than me, so she gets it and I'm still struggling and yet you've been equal, equally aided. So I am thankful that we are able to exercise that interchangeably and as of when the circumstances call for. Would you say that there's a difference working in female prisons versus like male prisons or would you say they're quite similar? No, <laughs> there's definitely a difference. There's definitely a, a difference. And I have had the opportunity to work with both male and female. As I lead the education department, we have students in both male and female. And I am telling you, it is different. Every gender or <laughs> everyone has their different needs. For the women, generally, you have to be a little bit um, more... I would say empathetic <laughs> compared to the men. You know, men are like built up to be strong and just hide stuff in, you know, most of them are not as vulnerable as the women, while the women are super vulnerable, which is very, very good. But um, yeah, I would say they do a terrible job at hiding even when they try. So as you walk into a class and it has, you know, it's, it, for me, I'm just going to be like, ha, Alexander, are you okay today? And maybe that day she just wants to talk about her kids that she left behind and she doesn't know how they are doing. So you just give her the time, you know. While when you walk into the, you know, class for the gentlemen, that day they are just thinking, wow, I'm about to get out, you know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, you know, I need to make this work. So they are very different. And as you work with them, you discover that, um, yeah, you have to treat the two audiences differently. And at the end of the day, it, it does work out marvelously because the women will speak and they'll give you an opportunity to just listen to them and encourage them as a fellow woman. And the men will also have their moments where you tell them, okay, you guy, you know, there's that pressure of being the man once you're out, but for now, you know, give this 100%. And who knows, it will fail when you come out, some of those pressures are being cured in this moment. So do the best you can. Yeah. And no, from between the stories you said that are very impactful. And then also this part where you're talking about the, the nuances between working in women prisons and, 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 and prisons for men. I think another thing that resonated with me in particular and going to the website and the different work that you're doing was this one statement where it said that the, the model, the justice defenders modeled, uh, amongst the different things it is, was that it was uh, focused on people and that it's people-centered. And so I just wanted to understand, like, what is people-centered justice? Um, so when we talk about people-centered um, justice and the models that we try to roll out, it's because unlike maybe other, you know, people, wherever they may be, their approaches, other approaches, when you appreciate that you are human, you know, it just always takes you a step further in what you do. 
you're able to empathize better, you're able to be, to exercise humility in whatever you do, you're able to exercise solidarity in what you do, you know, you're able to be brave because it is personal, you know. <laughs> so when we talk about people-centered, and we are putting out a model, we are not saying, oh, this is just Uganda. When it's people-centered, if you're suffering injustice in the US or you're suffering injustice in the UK or wherever you may be, it's the same thing. Injustice hurts just the same, okay? So when we talk about people-centered, we are empowering the incarcerated people to fight for you know, their own justice. We are bringing partnerships on board. We are working with judicial officers we are working with prison officers. When you're working with a prison officer, who knows this is personal? It is a people-centered you know, centered approach. He will rip off his uniform in his approach and he will deal with that incarcerated person as if he were human himself, because that is exactly what you are. you know. But when you do not focus on bringing it down to a level that it is personal for everyone and therefore everyone should join in the fight, then you're going to have instances where there's a serious separation between a prisoner and a prison officer to the point that an incarcerated person will be sick and will not be able to approach her and be like, oh, I feel, you know, a certain way, please do not give me work today. Or I'm a bit down today, please put me on the list of people that are going to make phone calls. You will have a magistrate who will not be able to listen the moment they say accused she has no ground whatsoever about listening to the other side of the story. So when we talk people-centered, we simply say exercise solidarity, humility, feel it, make it personal for you. Because whether you want it or not, injustice affects everyone, if not today, and you leave it to go on tomorrow, it will be your friend or your brother or your child or your grandkid. So when you realize that it's a movement that is supposed to take everyone globally as an effort because it is people-centered and it is personal for everyone, then you're able to, you know, fight it because, not because maybe you have cameras on you or because, you know, someone is watching you or because you just need to clear your desk. You're doing it because you know that it's affecting a person and that person could be you, it could be someone you care about, but beyond everything else, it is, that person is a person, you know? And they keep telling us human rights are inherent. By the mere fact that you're human, you're entitled to them. It has nothing to do with the status, it has nothing to do with the color of your skin, it has nothing to do with your religious affiliation, and it doesn't matter if they are not giving it to you. Simply because you're denying it does not mean it doesn't exist. It still exists. So when we have people who are placed wherever, in whatever position globally, realizing that justice is a people thing and we are supposed to make it personal for everyone, then it's like we are halfway done with injustices, if not all the way around done. That is absolutely amazing. I I think a lot of time with organizations, the approach is, oh, we don't want to be personal. We need to keep it professional. We need to kind of have that line. And the fact that Justice Defenders is willingly saying, we want to understand you as a person. We want to empathize with you. And we want you to do the same with us. I think that's what makes 
tangible change. That's what really starts it. It's when people are able to understand that we are human to take off that mask and to just be yourself, you know? Yeah, it's really powerful to hear. And, and I just love that <laughs> that focus on, like you said, not only are the services being provided, they're like tailored to the different circumstances, but yeah, really getting to the root of uh, one's humanity and trying to bring that back in an environment or in situations where you've kind of been stripped of that humanity and you're treated as of like sort of like an object, but trying to root people back in, in reality and, and working together to, to make change. And so um, I know when we were discussing, Hannah, we had some questions about kind of like moving forward. I don't know if you want to ask some of those questions before we wrap up. I feel like time has gone by so fast. I could talk to you probably for the rest of the day because I have so many questions. One thing that stood out for me and Alex when we were doing research relating to this was moving forward, we know that Justice Defenders works in East Africa and East Africa is a region of the continent that is still trying to move forward from the impact that colonialism has had. And do you think that Justice Defenders, as you move forward as an organization, has any future plans to maybe emphasize traditional or pre-colonial indigenous justice systems, especially because we recognize that the ones that are in Kenya and Uganda are ones that were put in place by colonial powers? Yeah, um, Justice Defenders, like I said, it's um, a movement and uh, we have so many other key players. Um, it's true, some of the laws that we have <laughs> in both countries, and I have had the privilege of studying in both countries, both here and Kenya, some of them are super archaic, <laughs> for lack of a better word, and they are super outdated. But the good news is, most of the key players, so we have what we call the uh, justice law and order sector. If I'm to be Uganda specifically, that justice law and order sector involves all the key players in the justice system. So we have NGOs that are in the justice system. We have police, we have judiciary, we have what the law societies and you know, all the key players. And many times we have interfaces where we are meeting, let's say like in a committee meeting where people, all the jailers actors or the justice law and order sector actors in that community are meeting every so often to just talk about, you know, what they have and, you know, what not. And these issues come up and we've presented them. The advantage that Justice Defenders has over any other player in the system is, um, we have the honor and privilege of knowing um, the incarcerated people beyond their uniforms. So they are very, very open. Someone will come to you and say, I was in court today and this and this happened. So what you do is you report back in a way that will now polish it up and report it as is. We create avenues where those key players in the jail system or the justice law and order system come over and they interface with the incarcerated people. And these things are pointed out. Like I said, it's not a one-man thing. Um, we've tried also through, you know, petitions, the public interest litigation petitions, where you're identifying a certain law and saying it's affecting and it's unfair because it has since been you know, like it's tell law, for lack of a better word. We partner with uh, teaching institutions as well 
you know, we have the University of London, we have Strathmore University in Kenya, we have Makere University through their PILAC. PILAC is the public interest law, and it's just a sort of small thing that was put up attached to Makere University, which is our national university. And once we have all these people and we are telling them there is this, you know, there is this, tomorrow when reports are written, they are identifying. And the good news is, even these same guys, like judicial officers, every so often they tell you, yeah, I do have a problem with this law as well, but they can't just wake up and change. See, there's a process. So what we do is we do the best we can. If we identify those things and there's like maybe appeal or public interest litigation that touches a specific field, we are able to use our students and paralegals to do the research, to adapt to it. Thereafter, we are approaching people, you know, people who have a passion in litigating that because it's a whole hectic process. We give them the research. This is good. We are helping to commission affidavits if need be, because those public interest litigations usually take a lot of, okay, I've been a part of that. I have suffered and this is my testimony. So we are helping with affidavits, commissioning, getting them out of the prisons, you know, giving, liaising and enabling our partnerships to just ensure that all the stale law that is unnecessary could be changed. But beyond that, even in our day-to-day, we have um, our paralegals and students writing submissions. And in those submissions, they are saying this is bad law. Justice so-and-so in a certain case said it's bad law. Therefore, I persuade the court to also rule that it's bad law. That is on a very small scale and it's individual. As we wait for the big petitions where the courts of law will say, actually, according to this case, that, you know, the Supreme Court ruled it's actually bad law, therefore moving forward, other judges may borrow from this and render it bad law as we wait for actual change of of, of the constitutions and the statutes, which could take forever to come. We are doing the little we can and just praying that one day we shall just have the boom. In the meantime, we take it a step at a time. Whatever we can do towards that, we do. Um, that's great to hear. <laughs> so many things. And like Hannah said, I wish we could keep talking and talking forever because there's so many things that we'd love to learn more about justice defenders, but we are reaching the end of our time together. So I'll ask one last question, which is, um, there's so many things that justice defenders is doing and, and continue to do. Um, like you said, you're spreading, it's a movement that's spreading across the continent and across the world as well. Um, so uh, can you let people know, like how can they get involved with the organization, with the growth of these initiatives? We are very, very happy to grow <laughs> our movement and community. As we speak, we're actually having discussions about potentially moving to the US as well. Last year, we launched virtually, we moved to the Gambia, so we are spreading, and it's an exciting movement to be a part of. I would invite everyone to check us out on our website. Uh, You could just Google Justice Defenders, and there's lots of information there that you you can just read upon. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm very available. I'm on the website as well. You could just side chat me and I'll give you everything that uh, I could give. Um, we have regular newsletters that come out. I'm also happy for you to still go on our website and, and read about them. 
and in the event that uh, you need some more talk, I am available. I could also link you with our comms department that is more than happy to share information. Yeah, check us out on our website. Okay, well then that's it in terms of questions from us. Unless Hannah, you have anything else you'd like to add really quick? No, I just wanna say like, I'm so incredibly grateful that you guys took the time to meet with us today. It's been such a journey with looking into Justice Defenders and finding the project and pitching it and have this interview with you was like, I think the perfect way for us to kind of solidify the journey that we've been on. And I can only hope that in the future, Justice Defenders continues to thrive and that we and other people, regardless of where we are in the world, can try to play kind of an active role in ensuring that there's justice for all regardless of the barriers that are in place. So thank you so much, Millie, for coming in and speaking to us and making this time because it really does mean so much to us. Thank you guys for having me and for the chat. It's always very exciting to, you know, tell anyone really about being a part of um, a justice movement. I think it would be such a nice world to just wake up and you don't have to worry about injustices because for the most part, you know, when you go deeper into the research, you discover the poor of the very poor are the ones that suffer the worst of the injustices. So just waking up and you just, you know, knowing that all is well, there is true justice, that justice that is not heard of, but it seemed to be done. And people believe in their justice systems and people believe in humanity. And it would just be such an amazing world. So yeah, we just heard from Melly and she had just a wealth of insights, experiences, and stories to share about the impact that Justice Defenders work has had on the you know different groups that they work with. And so I was wondering, like for you, what was like a key takeaway? Well, I would be lying if I said that I wasn't crying in the club for like half the interview. Like I kept having to mute myself so I could be like, To be frank, there wasn't one specific moment where I was like, oh, this is this is it. Just because of the fact that I think the entire time Millie was so incredibly humble about the work that Justice Defenders does. Um, And I think there's something so beautiful about that because they're an organization that is doing tremendous activism and advocacy and educating and they don't get as much attention as I think that they should and the fact that she was able to come here and talk to us about this and really kind of explain what prisoners are experiencing but also the impact that it's had on her and other people that she work with that she works with was like it just made my heart really warm and I think it gives me hope for being able to know that there, is, there are people out there who truly want justice and who want accessibility. And yeah, it made, it, was, it made me happy to hear. What about you? I think for me, the part that resonated with me the most was when she was telling that story about the mother who was separated from her two-week-old baby because she was wrongfully accused. And then yeah. just that mad scramble after realizing that she just had a baby and that there was a baby out there um literally out there somewhere that needed to be found and I'm just like just thinking about it gives me shivers it leaves you speechless because I could never imagine myself in that situation Mm -hmm. and then imagining someone else 
who's wrongfully being like convicted slash imprisoned who's been separated from their child who literally is like freshly brought onto this earth like imagine the strain and the trauma that she had to go through because of that experience and to know that justice defenders was like we're here to help we're also here to give you support so that you can advocate for yourself that's that's what it comes down to it comes down to empowering people in a meaningful way because it's one thing to give someone space it's another thing to give them space and give them the tools to then continue to grow and you know mobilize and be the best version of themselves and I think on the flip side of that story is this concept of humility and empathy and I think that was even a word that you had used when um, when talking with Millie the word empathy and and how like justice or whatever conceptualization you have of justice is rooted in people, in lives, in livelihoods, how Justice Defenders really brings out the humanity in the people who have been imprisoned. And, and it's that humanity that really fuels the work that they do in trying to like right the wrongs that have been done in whatever way that looks like, whether it's the training paralegals, whether it's helping people get degrees to go on and train further paralegals or train the next generation of like legal defenders. I think sometimes we forget that people are like people are human and we all go through experiences that are difficult and we all make bad decisions. And sometimes we make good ones and life throws wrenches in our way. And sometimes having the compassion to recognize that like, you know, someone has done something wrong, but they want to turn things around. I think there's a beauty in that. And like the amount of respect that I have towards people who are willing to acknowledge, you know, in certain situations, I might've done something bad. I'm able to reflect on it and see that I should have made a different choice, but now I can move forward and try to utilize tools that are being given to me to not only like make myself a better citizen and a better person, but also support my community and giving people that space is just like a very beautiful thing. This episode was edited by Hannah Ahamedi. The music was produced by Imani Lambropoulos. And the episode direction, research, and graphic design was done by yours truly. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrophe.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media at Urban Limitrophe to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way. Until next time.